What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. Podcast listeners, what's going on? On this episode, I am talking some smack with my old prof, Professor Fila. He's a bloody Brit, and he's got this amazing accent that I hope he reads bedtime stories to me every single night because it's awesome. But he tells us uh, you know, a little bit about his story of coming from the recruiting world based in the UK, now becoming you know, a professor in management at Hope College and doing some amazing work in that space. I will admit I probably should have paid a little bit more attention to him in my school days than, than I do, but you know, lessons learned, and now we're friends, uh, and I'm learning from him today as we speak. Um, but also, you know, just just hearing his work on, on stress and management and, and diving into this idea of how to truly understand stress, health, healthy levels of stress, negative levels of stress, and how management can help understand that within employees and how employees can better articulate that to management. It's just fascinating, fascinating, cool stuff. So he gets really practical about how to go about that in your organization as well. So I'd highly encourage you to listen to it. Not to mention, he's just a fantastic guy. So Professor Fila, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Professor Fila, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks, Matt. I know, I know we've, we've reached like a fun, uh, friendship, uh, mentorship level in our relationship. And you've told me to call you Marcus. I just am not quite there yet. You're still prof to me. <laughs> we're still, we're still, we're still back in marketing class and you're giving me grades that are not giving me a 4.0. Although my effort was certainly not a 4.0, uh, not a 4.0 journey. <laughs> <laughs> you did pretty well. 
<laughs> well, it's so good to have you here. We've got a lot of fun to have. I, I'm excited just to hear about your story, what, you, what you're working on now. And uh, this is just going to be awesome. So thank you so much again. And I'd love if you're willing, can you just like share your story? I know for the, the, the Hope audience, you know, I'm sure there's some students on here who are listening who've probably heard a little background, but I'd love for if you would just be willing to dive a little bit into who you are, what's your background, just what's your story? Absolutely. Uh, as you can tell from the, the accent, I grew up in the Holland area. No, I, uh, I'm, uh, I was I'm about to say Texas is where I was going to guess. Texas, but... I know, I know. I come from the Texas Oklahoma border. Or so, yeah. No, I'm originally from the United Kingdom. I have been uh, in the US for, uh, I would say, most of my adult life. I, I, I came here when I was 21. And I've been here ever since, except for a four year uh, bit of time I spent in London in between. Um, I have been a management professor at Hope College. This is my seventh year. Uh, it's been fun and a real pleasure to be there. Uh, prior to that, I had um, about 10 years working in industry. I was a uh, business development um, guy in London in the corporate media industry where I used to, um, I'll give you the short version, I used to contact company CEOs and basically interview them on the phone about their business and how they grew the company or how they were parachuted in to turn around a failing company. And then we would actually have uh, you know, a film crew that would go out and record them, and we would make a program on that, and we would have that on various, ten, uh, various channels on TV throughout the world. So I did that for a job. Um, and then I was also in executive recruitment for a number of years, I was um, I had a, a job after my MBA, which I'll talk about briefly in a minute, in London, where we were a boutique um, contingent, uh, sorry, not contingent, retained search firm dealing with partners for the big four. So this was another job that sort of fairly early on in my career, I mean, only in my mid-20s, I was talking and doing business with and learning a lot from people who were very much at the top end of the field that they were in. When you say uh, when you say big four, what does that mean? Because you're talking UK big four, right? Yeah, I mean uh, they're pretty much the same the world over. So you know Deloitte, KPMG, PwC. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Same, same the, sort of bigger, yeah, some of the bigger tier A firms like BDO and Grant Thornton. We you know we sort of obviously were interacting with them too. So so that's essentially what I did, and I got to. Um, I got to close to 30 and I just felt this tug. Uh, you know, you know, you tell people this. I mean, I say I just wanted to really get into the classroom. Um, I wanted to work with young people. I wanted to help people develop their career, find out who they are, find out what their interests were. I, I, I'd known a lot of people who were interested in business, but didn't really know, um, as I didn't at that age, what area of business they wanted to be in or really why they wanted to be in it. Um, so I wanted to help people sharpen those parts of who they were and to actually be, you know, for some people, the first ever business prof that they had. So that was something I was really driven to doing. Um, I uh, got into my MBA in London uh, about 15, 16 years ago now and uh, was, was learning about an array of business subject areas. Um, and that really helped shape later on what i'm going to do what i what i've been doing with all of the research that i do the other part of my job as a professor other than teaching um and sort of a lot of the direction i've been taking in the last few years so that's pretty much just a nutshell background of who i am and where i'm from 
So, and also I know you got to sprinkle in there, maybe a kiddo and a wife that teaches like conflicting colleges. Come on, man. You got to, you got to, you got to share, you got to share how you got rivalry in the household as well, too. I've just given you all the boring stuff, haven't I? Yeah, I know. My wife's a professor at Calvin. Uh, yeah, she she puts up with me. Uh, she tolerates me and has done for about nine or ten years now. And we have a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old daughter who uh, who keeps us going. She keeps me running around. Um, my, my parents say that I had that energy at that age, but I very much doubt it. <laughs> Love that. So you got to humor me for a second. So I, I uh, as, as you and I have talked offline, you know about my, my business, which is in the hiring talent acquisition space. So headhunting, recruiting, executive recruiting in UK, how does it structure differently than maybe uh, the United States based hiring. How, how, how are those things different? I just asked because obviously I'm a little curious. That's the space that our business plays in. And I'm just curious, like the business world of recruiting in, in the United States, how would it structure differently than maybe in the UK? I think one thing that hit me um, is that even in a big city like London, most people in an industry know each other. Um, and around the country, and it's really not, it's about one fifth of the population of the US, although the land mass is the size of Florida or the size of up here. Um, and there was a feeling that everyone was aware of who almost everyone was. And, and I'm sure in some industries in the US, it is like that too. But over here, it was just this massive, I mean, I remember when I first came over here, it just struck me how big the place was. And when I say how much opportunity there is, that sounds like a bit of a line, but it really does feel that way. Um, and there's always a perception of choice over here, I think. Uh, whether people are aware of it or not, there's always this sort of perception of almost endless choice for a lot of different fields that we don't always have. We have some choice, but not necessarily that much. So how did that relate practically to recruitment? Well, I think there was sort of like, um, I think, over, okay, I'm, going to generalize here. I think in the UK, it was a little harder to break into firms. I think people were aware of people. If you didn't know someone, if you didn't have, have an in, it was a little harder to get in. But once you were in, um, it was a kind of expectation that it would be a relationship for the longer term, unless you obviously did something bad, you know, or they did. Over here, I found it was much easier to get into a lot of places, at least at the time when I was doing it. It was very much a kind of what can you do for me today way of thinking. And I just, I mean, I just ate it up. I loved it. I really enjoyed the positivity. Um, I did find that once you had broken in, it was, um, there wasn't as much to keep you there. I mean, I never had a client throw me away. I had lots of clients in Fortune 1, 200 companies I placed 10, 12, 15, 18 plus people in. Um, but there was always a feeling that they could go to someone else very easily, whereas I never used to have that feeling quite as much in the UK. So there was sort of a good and a bad on both sides of the, both size of the coin really so so to bring your prof attitude and look at the business world on the uk side of things is more of a loyalty you know you knew the person's uh you knew you knew their kids names you knew what pub they drank at you knew sort of the important side that kept a relationship longer whereas in the united states they didn't care as much about that it's if you can price cut today we'll sign with you today for today's deal and today's deal only so it was a much more you know you could walk in win a business deal over less loyalty driven less stick around with people people that care about. Is that kind of how I'm understanding it? 
Similar. I mean, I wouldn't want to make uh, that sound like a negative here, but it's 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 not meant to. It was just a different way of thinking. It was always a sort of what can you do for me today, which when you're trying to open the door is fantastic. And when you're when you're trying to keep the door open, you know, it's almost like I would love to be able to get the best of both, you know, but obviously you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's, uh, let's, let's transition that into uh, teaching at hope. Right. So I probably was one of your, uh, one of your most obnoxious students because I probably didn't pay as much attention as I should have regret that today, but you know, what is it that sort of drives you as a prophet hope and, and what kind of has kept you fired up and doing what you're doing as far as like the, the, the sure the teaching side of things, but also as students, you obviously specifically cho- chose speaking, uh, you know, teaching to university age students. And so what is it that drives you to be in that space? I think it's just a very interesting age. And, and, and you see people from when they come in to when they leave. And, and really in our department, there's sort of three years because we start on the sophomore level. Um, and you just see massive change in that time. I mean, you see what what appears to me to be sort of in some cases, five or six years worth of change in just that sort of time frame um and as i alluded to earlier it, it, i mean it's an age where for various reasons i didn't necessarily have it all figured out i didn't feel completely confident in my choices um and and i wanted to i mean almost on a personal level i wanted to help other people do that um and regardless of their background regardless of who they are regardless of what they want to be um i really just wanted to help them guide sorry to help guide them through that process um in terms of content, I've always been very big on pushing people in at the deep end. I, I I want them to very quickly be reading sort of quite complex articles that have you know frameworks and thought processes behind them that are quite deep. Um, I don't think we need to baby them. I think we can get people right in there and doing it and sort of doing uh, HBR cases and presentations and things like that. And the other thing that really drives me as an educator is – when I'm educating people, I'm not just thinking about, you know, from now to the end of this course, what's important to teach people, and then that's the end and sort of bye-bye. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, everything I teach, I mean, almost everything I say in the classroom is very much geared towards, okay, how is this going to affect people in their internship, in their first job, in the first five years, in the first 10 years out of college? And I remember when I did my MBA in London, when we had our graduation, the guest speaker said a really profound thing. He said that uh, don't think that you're going to walk out of here and get all of the benefit from everything you've learned in the first day of the first job. Some of the things will come to you right away, but other things will be several years, five, 10 plus years down the road before you really appreciate to the full what you've been able to learn in this class and in this course. So, so that really hit me. And that's how I gear it, because I want it to be a long term win for people. Yeah, it's special, and uh, not to blow too much wind up your uh, up your skirt, sort of thing. But I certainly you've left an impact, and obviously we're doing this podcast today because we've kept a pretty strong relationship. So, and I know many other students you've done that for as well, which is pretty powerful. So, thank you for that. Um, on uh, on that note, I know you're doing some pretty special work outside of the classroom around this concept of stress, and as a uh, startup founder. Uh, quote unquote CEO in the space. I deal with stress nonstop all day long. And so I'd love uh, basically for the next 20 minutes, you to solve all of my problems and make me never be stressful again, sort of thing. Right. So uh, no, on that note, I just would love for you to dive in a little bit and talk about kind of the work you're doing in the space of stress. Yeah. Well, first of all, why I think it's an important subject. Um, It affects everyone. Uh, No company or organization is immune to uh, from it. 
And it affects everything in the value chain. It affects everything that a company does. It affects everything that people do. And it's actually something that is a lot more um, within the control of good, positive, two-sided conversations between employees and employers than I think most people tend to believe. Um, go, go, going back to my education in London, when I was on that course, when I was on that MBA course, it was great to learn about finance and operations and marketing and all these other wonderful subject areas on a good MBA. But I did a personal and professional development course taught by an excellent professor who's now at the London School of Economics. And there were various subjects in there like work-life balance and, 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 and redesigning work around people, not necessarily individual people, but people within certain jobs and certain groups to really help them to perform well and reduce propensity to leave. And it hit me between the eyes. I mean, I, I know anyone who's enthused about anything can think that every nail has a hammer-shaped head or whatever the phrase is, but it really hit me. And I, it, it suddenly jumped to me that no matter how effective we are in any of the uh, business verticals or you know any of the areas like finance operations, sales, marketing, et cetera, if we don't get this right, if we allow this to go under the radar, then there's going to be consequences for it. And and at the time, I thought that was the end of my education, period. So I was working as a headhunter. And then, and then I suddenly realized when I was dealing with these very high-end people, these partners, and they weren't just in the UK, they were all over the world, the ones I was dealing with, that when you were moving people from one big four accountancy practice or you know very big tier A accountancy practice to another, okay, Actually, when you get down to it, what those individual practices did were not that different from each other. They all have their identity. They all have the mission and the vision and whatever the values are. But but what Ernst & Young does is not that different from Deloitte. What KPMG does is not very different from PWC, et cetera. So what would it be that got people to move? And it always, always, always got to be something around missed opportunity, frustration, uh, bad relationships at work. People, now this is the big one, people who believe they should be in a position by now where they have more autonomy than they actually had. They were driven, highly educated, you know, energetic people at the very pinnacle of their game in most cases, right? So there was a level at which you could trust them and say they knew what they were doing and they still felt that they were micromanaged. They felt that there was too much red tape around them. They felt that, and, and, and they appreciated that there had to be boundaries. They appreciated that there had to be rules. They weren't expecting to be able to come in and do whatever they want, but it was just interesting. And with a lot of the people that I was um, involved with, uh, either moving or certainly having a hand in moving at the time, it was you know, first of all, they were, I mean, they were polite and they were clever at that level and wanted to have an ear to the ground to opportunity. But they were often, it took a couple of conversations to get them interested. And this whole subject you know, uh, really was what triggered it for a lot, you know, to use to use what people say now. It really, you know, it really triggered it. And, 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 and it got me into discussions that were very interesting with them about how to improve their work life. Okay. It wasn't going from what they thought was a bad company to a good company. It was how to improve their work life and give them a span of autonomy and support and, and, and a working culture and a working situation that would really fit 
their identity as a person who did that job. And that's so I got to, I got to ask real quick on that note. Uh, so I'm wearing the lens of being a business owner that tries to give sort of my team members in a very small company, but give my team members the ability to go out and make decisions on their own end. So from a big corporate standpoint, what is like sort of the, from, from your perspective, like the big stress that people deal with? Is it truly, as you alluded to, like the lack of a like autonomy and the lack of ability to make decision making, like to have decision making, or, you know, what, what would be the driver of stress and frustration, you know, sort of at a bigger company? Because quite frankly, that's just not a perspective that I have. Yeah. I think that when you look, I mean, um, obviously it's going to change based on the industry that people are in, based on the career phase that they're in, based on where they're located and, 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 you know, all those sorts of things. But I think something that's actually quite common, uh, that I've seen an awful lot of and, and, and spurs a lot of these things is that professional service or, you know, companies, careers, if you like, demand a certain energy. They demand a certain drive. They demand someone who really has um, some level of urgency to progress. And then they put them through, obviously, as they should, quite a rigorous selection process and are often quite demanding of, of, of the quality of their background in terms of their educational qualifications and other jobs that they've had. And then they get hired. And then what seems to happen again and again and again is that the workload that's put upon them, they expect it to be high. And it is high, you know, obviously in a lot of cases. Sometimes it's very, very high. But the thing that really makes the work feel harder than it is and gives people this this idea that the demands placed upon them are beyond their ability to cope is very often around this issue of control. It's very often around the fact that um, the organization doesn't necessarily free them to do things the way that they want to be done. Now, you can break this down. Like if we had a three-hour podcast going on, I could I could break this down for you at the level of the job. I could break this down for you at the level of the five major tasks that people do. I could break this down at the level of the 70 or 80 or the 90 sort of subtasks that people do. And you could quite scientifically break down a job for a person or a group of people in a team and say, right, you tell me here where you feel that you're given the freedom to do things a certain way. And you tell me here where you feel like there's a bit of a foot on your head. And this isn't the only problem, but this is this is a really big one. Okay, where is it that you feel that you could have a lot more control over how things go in terms of what you're doing, the ordering of how you're doing it, when you're getting it done by, okay, and just in terms of a process and who it is that you have help you with it, okay? Basically, people often use the term intrapreneur as an entrepreneur within a larger company. So, so it's how to make people intrapreneurs and when do they feel they should be allowed to do that and they're not necessarily always given that. Now, I want to say something really big here. My interest in this field is not a sort of anti-corporation, anti-the-boss thing. Because obviously there is um, there is some level where this is a teeter-totter, or as we Brits would say, a seesaw, where it's a two-sided conversation. And that is a really, really important point. Okay. If we make it a one-sided conversation, what happens is either the companies say, oh, our employees are the wrong employees. And they have a situation where they go through, again, a very tough hiring process. And they're very sure of what they want. 
and then people leave. I mean, turnover is just so high and it's so expensive. The cost of an employee leaving, again, it's going to depend on the industry, the field you're in, is somewhere between 60 and 200% of what that employee earns a year. To actually have them walk out the door, take everything that they know and can do with them, and to replace them with an equally or superior superior performing employee is 60 to 200% of that. So how much pressure those costs are going to put on the remaining employees to perform in a way that compensates for that. And then it just becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. It goes round and round and round. But um, one of the reasons why this subject goes really under the radar. Now, let me tell you how under the radar it goes, Matt. When you go and look on uh, LinkedIn and you go and search for a hashtag on LinkedIn, okay, uh, you know, and they do articles every year, the top 10 or the top 100 ones on LinkedIn, right? If you look for management, okay, there is something like, I'm just going to pull this up real quick, so I'm not giving you the wrong number or making it exponentially more or less than what it is. If you go to LinkedIn and you go to search and you do hashtag management, okay, it's going to tell you how many people follow that, all right? 36,049,700. Okay. If I should start do, hashtagging. Uh, I should start hashtagging management and everything I do going forward. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's the second only to innovation. Wow. Innovation is the top of one. Course, of course, it is. Human resources is thirty-three million four hundred thousand. Work stress. Okay. Do you want to have a guess? I feel like I'm going to go polar and it's either going to be amazingly high or amazingly low. Let's say work stress. Okay. Let's go. Before you answer, before you answer, why, why do you think it might be really high? Um, the only reason why I feel like it could be really high is because so many people are subtly acknowledging that they are stressed, but not really yes. knowing what to do with it. Yes. But yes, that's also yes. the reason why I feel like it'd be low is because most people are not willing to acknowledge publicly that they feel that. Well, and whenever I talk to anyone about the research that I do on the subject, because um, pretty much all of the research I do that I've, I, I've um, published uh, various empirical articles and book chapters on this in, in the last seven or eight years. Okay. And, you know, whenever I am asked what I do for that side of my job and, oh, well, I do all my research on this and then people go oh well that applies to me ha 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 you know i'll i'll be one of your people you know um everyone says that to me all the time okay so management 30 what do we say 33 and a half million followers work stress 75 wait 75 million followers the hashtag for that on linkedin has 75 followers now Tell me someone you know who thinks thinks that this is an irrelevant subject. Uh, I don't know anybody who doesn't think it's irrelevant. Sorry? I, I, like, I feel like everybody who I would know would think that's a rel- relevant subject. That, yeah, would think that it's super relevant. Right. So the question is, and this sort of goes, goes back to one of your earlier points, why does this go under the radar? Okay. Why does this go under the radar? Um, I just wrote a LinkedIn article about this a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Um, and again, there are basically four different reasons I came up with through the background I have and also 
some of the research I've done on this as to why this goes under the radar. Okay. Um, and, you know, just, just, just as a point of note, it's, it's very interesting how prevalent something can be and how almost ubiquitous it can be and yet how under the radar it can go. Okay. It's a multifaceted subject. It's not one thing. It's not like, uh, you know, boiling an egg is one thing. There, there are many different elements to this. I mean, you know, to just give you a couple, when you look at job demands, you know, who are they coming from? How well defined are they? How appropriate are they for the role that someone is in? And I'll get back to that if I have time in a minute, because that that that's one of the new areas. How do they professionally challenge you? Or are they just basically presenting barriers to goal accomplishment? Okay. Uh, do you have discretion, going back to what I said a minute ago, over how the work is done? Do you have uh, support from colleagues, from your boss, and from the company as a whole? Okay. So these... Uh, and, and sort of being off in one area can throw out some of the others. So it becomes a bit of a Rubik's Cube where, where everyone can quite consciously fix one of the sides of the cubes. I was like really good at doing one side, but I could never do the whole thing. Okay. So because there's lots of different elements to it, you can't just point a finger to what it is so easily, even though you can define it as when people appraise the demands that are made of them at work as going beyond their ability to cope. That's basically what it means. But what actually is... Um, the subparts of that are such a lot that, that, that because you can't easily point a finger on it, we just go, nah, okay. Second reason, there's lots of causes, okay? Now, some of them are beyond the company's control, okay? Now, if you remember from our exciting marketing class together, we talked about industry analysis, and we talked about the five forces of industry. Michael Porter, you know, sort of power of buyers and suppliers, threat of new entrants, rivalry, substitutes, right? All these things that affect an industry like winds of change. And beyond that, you've got these political, economic, social, technological factors. I mean, this is sort of classic MBA sort of thing here, right? Obviously, something like COVID-19 is a massive, massive, massive pestle factor that's affecting lots of industries right now ergo lots of companies right it's causing a lot of tension for a lot of people that's not necessarily something that's that well it's not uh, under any company's control so again my whole my whole side to this is not i'm having a go at companies here it's it, it, it's not trying to castigate people that run companies that are not paying attention it's, it's more just trying to really make people aware of it and in a positive spirit to say no actually it can be a win-win if you really do pay attention to it because there's a lot of I mean, other than hopefully caring for, for what a lot of corporations say are our greatest assets, i.e. people, there's also a lot of bottom line improvements to, to it if you're able to bring down turnover, if you're able to keep people there and make them more productive. Okay, so it has lots of causes, right? These things outside your control, okay? But how jobs are designed is within the grasp of the people that run companies. Now, if you're working for a massive multinational corporation and you're a mid-level manager, that might not be hugely in your control. I bet there's some things you do have the freedom to reshape within your team, though. So the question is, what are they? But if some of your listeners here are CEOs of companies or people very high up in companies, this is one of the, the most, if I can put it this way, exciting and positive aspects of what sounds like a pretty dingy and negative subject is that redesigning and I don't mean massively like shaking, but redesigning how jobs are put together around things like not just how much work people have, but the type of 
work that they're sorry the, the 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 way that the tasks are put to them how they have the discretion what supports are in place who they're reporting to what the outcomes are right that is massively under the control of organizational leaders it's not something that they have to look outside the company to do um the third reason is that no one wants to own the consequences all right so i mean something that's important to say at this point and maybe we should have said it maybe i should have said it at the beginning is that you need stress to a point. You need some of it for energy, for performance, actually just for well-being. I mean, if you're too bored, you're not going to perform and you're not going to be happy. So people need some of this. It's a curved, linear relationship. It's not more is better or less is better. It's There's a sweet spot in there. Okay, And it's going to vary a little bit by person. It's going to vary a little bit by other characteristics. Okay, But there's going to be a range in there. But when it gets too high, either it becomes very acute, very high, or it's chronic. It's just ongoing, okay, well, you know, without any break. Okay, that's where the problems come in. And nobody wants to own the dire consequences. So when you're in a company uh, and somebody has poor performance, somebody is not happy with their job, somebody wants to leave, somebody actually does leave, and by leaving incurs those huge turnover costs to that company. The question is, who's to blame? I don't mean, is it the employer or the employee? I mean, you, even if you get beyond that, even if you were to sit down in a company and say, okay, why did, uh, why did uh, Joe Bloggs leave this company last week? Whose fault is it? Is it the person that hired them? Is it the person that they were directly working for? Is it the person that organizes all of the management and the red tape, basically? Is it the CEO's fault, even though he or she may not have spoken with that person very much, particularly if it's a large company? It's very hard to place attribution when things like this happen. So it just doesn't get attributed anywhere very often. And the last reason that this goes under the radar um, sorry, I hope I'm not talking for too long here, is, is that responsibility is very much a mutual thing, right? So it sort of shifts, you know, the blame shifts, right? So an employee that, 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 that comes to hate their job because of this will, will always blame the organization, of course. They'll never blame themselves. They'll never say, was I a good fit for that job? Did I have any right to have that job? Did I have a good eye out for the boss? What, what, what was I doing to help what was I doing to help the people that ran the company? What was my buy-in to them? Because, of course, people running the companies feel this massively as well. I mean, you know, so, you know, tension can go up an organization. It doesn't just come down, right? But conversely, and this is back to my point, and this jumped out to me in the headhunting job, okay? Organizational belie- uh, people, sorry, people that run companies can simply have the mindset that the right employees will just tough it out no matter what. But what happens if, um, other than these outside shocks or changes to the industry or pestle things like what's happening now with uh, the coronavirus, other than stuff like that, what if you have a situation where you have a team in your company and the person that runs that team leaves? Things are going well, and that person leaves. And then the new person that comes in, there's a friction there, there's a problem there, whatever it may be. And the employees in that team are just not jiving with that person. And you start seeing turnover in that part of your company going up, right? It's too simplistic at that point to just suddenly say all the employees are the wrong employees because why were they the right employees before? And, you know, because I was dealing with very senior people and because it was 
this problem that was ultimately what moved them. Okay, there has to be a level. There has to be a level, a competency level, a seniority level where you can't just say the employees are weak. It's, you know, we've got the wrong people in the company and ha ha ha. If they were the right people, they would just deal with it. Right. There has to be. So so there's a two way accountability. There's a two way accountability. And it tends to be that people on either side will blame the other. So no one really talks about it. If they do, it's in a half hearted way, usually. Um they, they, they will have, I'll come on uh, briefly in a minute to what I mean by that. They'll, they'll come on to a sort of band-aid way of trying to patch over the problem and hoping it goes away on both sides. Um, and then it just will carry on. It will just totally continue and it will just repeat and in some ways get worse. And of course, if you're the employer here, then it's going to affect your reputation in the market as an employer of choice, right? Sorry, as an employer of choice. So everyone's a winner if they deal with it. Everyone's a loser if they don't deal with it. And no one has to feel like a loser by talking about it. I, I, I feel like employees are scared to bring it up. Employees go, okay, I'm a hardworking, driven person. If I tell people that I'm finding this really tough at the moment, it's going to make me look bad. So I'm not going to tell the boss. I'm not going to tell my colleagues in case I get, um, you know, uh, in case they, what's the expression, in case they knife me in the back. Okay. Um, and then if you're a manager, or a company owner, you're probably not jumping on this going, yeah, let's bring in a consultant like Marcus Fieler to come and talk with us about how to lower this problem in our company. Because, you know, they're probably thinking, well, that makes me look like a bad employer. If I say we have an issue with this, or some people might have an issue with this in my company, that makes me look like a bad employer. But I tell you what, Matt, from all the discussions I've had with people from various levels, lots of different jobs and industries, Good employees, the employees that you want to keep will actually, that the respect for you will go through the roof if you deal with this issue. If you say proactively, we are going to help you manage this, and that includes us at times looking at what we can do differently as well as just giving you Band-Aid things like do yoga, go go-karting go or some kind of out-of-office, you know, non-work day or something, right? All those things are good. But if we really get to the root of what's causing the problem in the first place and we help you do that, and we know that there may be things that we could do differently that helps you, man, the respect and the loyalty that your employees will have for you will be absolutely through the roof. So on that, on all that, so if, if I'm a uh, stressed but motivated and driven employee and I am a, let's call them on the spectrum, a socially aware manager, what yeah. would be the first step that a, 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 a driven employee can take towards at least beginning this dialogue? And then what's the first step that a, let's call it, you know, socially aware, emotionally intelligent manager can do to begin this dialogue? Good question. Okay, well, the first thing is, uh, I just heard a great podcast by uh, Tasha Yurik, actually, this week, um, about how something something crazy, like uh, 95% of people think they're self aware, and only 10 to 15% of us actually are. So, So I think the first thing for either side of the ballpark there is to ask, you know, how self aware are we about ourselves, or about how we're running things. Um, but to get to your point to get to I think, Okay, so let's begin with the employee point of view. It does depend on the relationship with your manager. It does depend on the relationship with uh, senior people in the company. If you're working for someone who is a micromanaging, maniacal control freak, there's nothing you can do. You might as well 
I mean, short of going around them to someone else who you might trust who's above them and trying to have that discussion there, although the fear is it could obviously hurt you, you have to have some level of relationship and respect with your boss and actually be able to go to them and say, look, you know, you know who I am, you know what I'm all about, you know, here's, here's what I've done to add value to you and this team and this company for X amount of time and in all these different ways, right? Is there a way that we could sit down and look at, you know, here are some of the tension points that I'm having. Here are some of the ways that I think it could be helped if you'd be willing to talk about this with me, right? Trusted, value, intelligent, driven employee shouldn't be afraid to have that conversation with a respectful manager who's got their back and wants them there. Um, but of course, the problems are, do we really trust that we can have that conversation? Okay. So if you do, I think it really, it, it sounds too simplistic, but it literally is a good point to begin is to actually go and say, look, I thought about this. I've analyzed this. Here are some things I'm really happy about, things I re think are really superb here. And here are a few ways that I think if we were to tweak how I do this part of the job or that part of the job, or maybe move me from doing this to this, something else like that, you know, this would really improve for me, right? And and that's not to say that a manager is going to just click their hands and just say, yes, we're going to change everything to be exactly how you want it. But I think it's a point to begin. Now, if you're the manager or the company owner, okay, the most important point in this, besides what I've already said, which is that, that, that um, you shouldn't feel like a loser or that you're a bad place to work if you actually address this rather than just hoping it goes away. The most important piece of advice I would give other than that is to get onto primary interventions. Okay, so let me just tell you what I mean by this. Not only is the hashtag for this 75 people on LinkedIn. If you Google it, okay, if you Google it, work stress, okay, and it's going to um, give you all these sort of ways of how to handle it. And these are very much directed at employees, how to cope with it, nine simple ways to deal with it, um, you know, general points here three ways to do it coping 12 ways to eliminate it you're never going to eliminate it by the way and that and that isn't ever the goal and we're talking about huge major players that huge major publishers are the people that are writing this okay it's it's a lot of good advice matt but it's a lot of one-sided advice which is all always about what the employee can do differently and to go back briefly to my previous example if you're a healthy functioning positive value-adding employee, and then something happens, like maybe the manager of your team changes, and for whatever reason, you just it, it isn't working for you, and you become all the things that an employee that deals with this is, you know, disengaged, emotionally burned out, thinking about possibly leaving, maybe, maybe going from praising the company at the water cooler to starting to talk about how things are looking a bit unfair and not quite as they used to be, right? All these things that you can Google just basically say, oh, go and do yoga, go to the gym, eat more greens, do breathing exercises at your desk, you know, use use one of those balls you can crunch in your hand. All those are good things to do, but they're not going to get to the root of the problem. You as a manager have got the power in your hands or, or as a company owner to get to the root of this problem. How do you do it? Look at primary interventions. Everything you read about about this, or almost everything, is tertiary interventions. It's okay. People who have already got this in a major way, um, 
here's a self-help book, here's an employee assistance program, here's, uh, here's some sort of uh, counseling program, here's some sort of a meditation uh, practice. Okay, fair enough. Secondary interventions are getting warmer. They're sort of preventative reactive interventions. Okay, so this is when companies will do things like team building exercises or companies will do relaxation programs or some kind of a wellness program. That's a big thing right now. Again, these are not bad things to do, but they are missing sometimes the reason that the problem is there in the first place. And that's why they'll ultimately not solve it. They'll just delay it, reduce it, band-aid over it. Primary interventions, okay, are things like redesigning of reward distributions to be more equitable, using employee participative programs. So actually giving people some say in the goals and the boundaries of what they're doing, reorganizing lines of authority. Now, all these things are easy for me to say, and they take a lot of effort to sit down and even talk about, let alone doing, but this is where the gold is in this subject. Okay. Um, changes in decision-making processes and making relevant uh, choices in the company. Uh, the big one that I focus in on is socio-technical interventions, redesigning of job tasks, job functions, job processes, and work schedules. Okay. And there's other things as well, like, you know, job enrichment programs, um, changes, sort of in, in improving role clarity. So people actually know what they're responsible for, what they're not responsible for. And if I was a company owner and I heard this, I would be thinking to myself, crap, that sounds like way too much work for me to do this. I'm just going to carry on with the secondary and the tertiary interventions and just hope it works out. Um, fair point. But my encouragement is if you actually pay attention to even two or three of those areas, Okay, you'll be probably one of the only people out there in your industry doing it. That's going to generate the loyalty and people are going to be aware. People talk. I mean, everyone that works for you has probably had a similar job somewhere else. Okay, maybe they've had two or three or four or five or 10 other jobs in their career doing something similar somewhere else. And what people often do is they're going to subconsciously compare in their mind one company to another. Okay. They're going to get up every day in the morning and go, what's it like working here compared to where I used to work? So if you jump on some of this stuff, you will be definitely, um, I mean, I would say without question, a favored choice. Okay. Is there time for me to give you one one, one sort of um, tidbit of where, where to begin this? Oh, my goodness, of course. Okay. Um, well, there's, there's, okay, so one one kind of bridge word that gets us from things like, you know, what I talked about uh, before from sort of control and um, autonomy and various kinds of support from colleagues and from supervisors and from the company as a whole. One, one bridge word is appreciation. And I don't mean like, yeah, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jane, for doing your job. Well done. We'll see you tomorrow. Do it all over again. I mean, a deep seated appreciation on the part of the leader that almost shows a little touch of vulnerability that they're going, you know, I'm so happy that you're here. And I really appreciate how you've added value there. That's so obvious. It's so easy, but it is so, so powerful. Okay. Um, but the two words that I'm using that bridge to go from what I talked about before to what I'm going to sort of end talking about now is our trust. And this is more of a technical one here, task legitimacy. Okay. So there's a lot of there's a lot of research out there that actually employers genuinely, not just having, but showing that they have trust 
in the people that work for them. Again, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But if you look at any friendship you have, any relationship in your personal life, right? What, what is one thing that makes it supremely better? Showing trust in that other person. It's exactly the same in a company. Why do we not do it enough? We just maybe forget. We just maybe think that we don't want to be like showing a vulnerable side where we show that we kind of need that person here. Okay, but trust is will trust will beget extra trust and people will trust you back. But the big one, the big one is um, identity. Okay, so whenever I talk about this, um, whenever I do a retreat or I'm at a conference or something like that, people say, well, okay, you're talking about all these primary sort of job redesign interventions. But number one, this all sounds very complex. And number two, we have hundreds or thousands of people working for us. We can't physically redesign this job around everyone individually that does it. So what do we do? Well, here's the answer. There's a beautiful space that happens between this sort of umbrella collective and individual differences. And it's professional identity. Okay. So you have a, an identity, Matt, as a, an entrepreneur and a really good one at that. <laughs> I have an identity as a college professor, as a management consultant and someone in this field, right? Someone who's an accountancy practice partner has an identity in that. Someone who's a school teacher has an identity in that. You have it as a CEO. Everyone has an identity that's partly wrapped up in the company they're working for at that time, but also goes beyond that. It's an identity in the job that they have. Okay. Now, again, most people are not in their first job doing that job. Okay. So that identity has been formed based on previous jobs that they have. Sorry, that they've had. That identity has been formed based on people that they know who also do that job. Maybe they're colleagues, maybe friends, maybe they've gone to conferences and made a lot of professional contacts, right? Whatever job you're in, you get an idea of what should be expected of you. And here's the kicker what falls outside of those expectations? Okay, about 10 years ago, which is a long time in business, but a very short time in academia, we uh, people began doing research on this concept called illegitimate tasks. Okay, illegitimate tasks are things that fall outside of the boundaries of what someone in a given role should be expected to do. Okay, now the, the, the things themselves might not be hard to do. They might not be egregious in any particular way in and of themselves, but they violate the professional identity that that person has. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. Right? It can be things that are massively below someone's pay grade, like expecting a surgeon to change bedpans in a hospital. It can be things that are massively above someone's pay grade, like expecting someone who's a PA at a legal firm to actually host the client meeting. Okay, Or they can just be things that fall outside the boundaries of what should be expected okay so if you're in a um if you're a college professor and you're suddenly asked to do something that falls outside of your teaching and your research like oh goodness me for example organizing a community event right well you might choose to do that you might be someone that volunteers to do that right but but if they start writing that into your job description and expecting you to do it that's different you know so the key is OK, when you look at any job that's out there and and here's a big question that I have for organizational leaders, where are your job descriptions coming from? Who's writing them? What's on there? 
and how do we know what's on there is 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 falling perfectly in line with the sort of normatively developed identity people have for that particular job right so the people coming in to interview and join your company the things that are on your job description where are those coming from and how well do they fit that normative identity that people have for that job coming in okay so there are two sorry just just briefly there are two types of these there are unreasonable tasks that people believe that someone else should be doing in the organization okay so so you know this is someone's job to do but it's probably not something that i should be doing now you can imagine in a company where there's lots of people doing lots of different jobs okay and they all sort of link together somehow like right you can have a scenario that maybe what you know uh, Jane should be doing leaks onto John's plate or what John should be doing leaks onto Jane's plate. And that suddenly becomes a formalized requirement. Whereas as if they had that job in any other company in that industry, no one else would be expecting them to do that. Illegitimacy. Okay. The other kind is unnecessary tasks that are simply when you believe that no one should have to do that job, but sorry, no one should have to do that task. Things that are just clearly a waste of your time. So if you have uh, an archaic uh, IT system in the company, for example, um, and it takes you so much longer to input data on it because the company can't be bothered to update that system, okay? Or if you have to, um, if you have two different uh, IT uh, operate. Um, if you have two different points of data entry and they don't align well and you basically have to do everything twice, something like that that could be just a waste of your time, a waste of your time, that just induces anger. That just induces like, you know, why am I doing this? It's not because it's hard work, right? Your job might not be that tough. Your, your, your workload might not be that high. But these things, if they're on your plate, are going to cause this tension. My last point on that is that... Um, I published some research on this last year, and um, what I found was that the amount of um, variance, if you like, in various negative psychological outcomes like burnout, like anxiety, like emotional exhaustion was actually 10% higher because of task illegitimacy than all these other things that I've been talking about, like how demanding someone's job is, what's the clarity on what their role actually is, uh, like control over how they're doing their work, like support, right? These things have been out there for decades, in the, right? But this is just the last 10 years. And I published a paper last year that actually showed that it counts for 8 to 10% more over and above those things when people perceive that they're having to do illegitimate tasks that might not be difficult, but just fall outside the realms of what should be expected for anyone in that particular position. Love that. And I feel like that leaves not only the employee, but the manager pretty empowered to how to first off, like how to ask the right questions of, am I overwhelming my staff members? And as an employee, am I appropriately like, quote unquote, complaining about the right things? Or am I dealing with stuff that I shouldn't actually be dealing with versus should I just suck it up and go deal with it sort of thing? So I think that's that's special stuff. And I also think that like you are diving into the, the whole question of like, how do we actually appropriately deal with stress in the workplace? And, mm -hmm. and what's, what, what is the appropriate level of stress that like we all need to drive us, but also what's like too much to the point where it's going to break us at some point. So I think that's, I'm pretty fired up on that. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, no, that's a real compliment. And, uh, 
the last point I'll make on it briefly is that I, I just wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about this COVID-19 and, and, and how, you know, there's such a tremendous number of people that are now working at home, you know, right, with their laptops. Um, that is this- my entire, my entire uh, business is all driven by me, my laptop, my team and their laptop. That's it. Exactly, exactly. But I, I was just I was just there at home. I, I was in the, the back room where I am now in our house. And I was just thinking about this myself. I thought, you know what, it's virtually impossible to replicate a set of job tasks in an office to people working at home. So this so if the whole subject collectively is getting 75 hashtags um, uh, on LinkedIn, imagine you go deeper into it and this whole area of job design being really the kernel of, of, of how to actually solve this, how to actually prevent it happening in the first place or really reduce it to a point where it can be handled very healthily, right? So you've got almost an unknown area within an area that's not getting enough attention. So you're in the eye of the eye of the needle here. But I started thinking to myself, a lot of jobs out there are being redesigned almost by accident because a lot of people right now today are working from home because of COVID-19 for however long we are. So I wrote an article on LinkedIn that basically said, well, okay, obviously tension is going to go up because we're working outside of the way we normally do. But I wonder how much more trust and control and appreciation perhaps even and support people are getting right now. I wonder in what ways there's more intentionality from both the employees and the employers to communicate well, okay, because of this new and hopefully temporary way of working. And then I asked myself, what could employees write down and then go back to their companies and say, even though I'm back in the office now, can we keep some of how we've been doing this? Other ways we've changed the job. Other ways we've adjusted it around it. Um, sorry, uh, other ways we've adjusted some of those work characteristic around demand control, support, things like that, that actually have been working out really well. And just because we're all back in the office now, it doesn't mean we have to go completely back to the old way. And and I just think that's a really so. So this question has almost sort of landed on everyone's desk or their lap by accident. So sort of now is the time to start thinking about this. Um, so uh, I was just going to end with one thing. So obviously my, my, my primary job is I'm a, you know, I'm a professor at Hope College of Business. Um, I also um, give keynote speeches. Um, I also do uh, webinars. Um, I'm going to get into podcasting. I have a book in the works. And um, I have a website URL that you can go to. Ease workstress.com e-a-s-e-w-o-r-k-s-t-r-e-s-s.com and if you go there and you put your email address in there there is a downloadable self-assessment tool that you can use you can use it as a manager you can use it as an employee and you can perhaps give it to your colleagues to your other employees to use and it's going to get to a lot of the areas of research that have been going on for years and sometimes longer than that that um, for some reason don't always get the attention that they should, but really have been shown again and again and again to have tangible bottom line evidential wins for companies if they start paying attention to them. So I would encourage you to go to that website and then let me start helping you from there. Yeah, 
Absolutely love that. My last question, my last question, how I like to wrap every podcast up is ultimately at the end of the day, between everything that you have going on, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning the most? Wanting more people to be uh, happy in their work. Wanting more people to be happy in their work. We're, we're, we're going to be working for a long time, you know. Um, it takes up a lot of our lives. And a lot of people have been very conscious about choosing the type of work that they do. Not everyone, but a lot of people have. So why does this need to be such a huge problem? You know, I'm saying this as a hard driving kind of pretty hard work guy myself. I'm not saying this as someone who's, you know, soft and going, oh, if only life were just easier. I think we should have hardworking employees and drive and, 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 and energy and determination. I'm not trying to take it. This is not about a soft route. This is about saying, get the best out of people and you will be amazed at how much more they can do for you. And they'll be happier and they'll not leave in droves. They'll be there for longer and they'll produce. So I just say, so my sort of um, thing that gets me out of bed is just to improve the relationship that people have with their work and for that to be truly recognized for what it is, which is a two-way discussion, not a bunch of helpful but ultimately inadequate band-aids to just get people through another week. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Well, Professor Fila, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. I feel like I have to go back and ask all my employees how they're doing, check in on them, like make sure the stress is appropriate, not too high, but this has been amazing, definitely eye-opening, and I feel like the listeners are going to absolutely love and begin to ask the right questions about stress and work. So thank you so much. And the first thing you can do if you want is go to the website, pop in your email address, you'll get that workbook, and away you go. Love that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Anything else you want to leave the audience with? Um, no, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I hope I haven't droned on too long. Um, I hope you get something valuable from this. Contact me absolutely anytime. I'll be very happy to talk with you. Um, none of this is about looking for problems which aren't that which aren't there. I'm not trying to fish for issues that aren't there. I just want to help and make it better for you and your 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 company and your em- employees. And that's here what I'm what I'm really driven to do. Amazing. Thank you so much, and uh, appreciate you being a guest on this podcast. Pleasure. Thank you.